Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Max Majorant. Welcome back, everybody. I am solo today, and I'm going to talk about a few things that have been on my mind. A couple things is, uh, you know, a lot of people follow me on this land, on this uh, podcast, and they really kind of enjoy the content. And uh, I've been obviously giving feedback to everybody. I appreciate that. You know, the next few months while you're in the tree scene, I want you to think about the content you enjoy and love. Send me a message. I will listen to everybody's point of view, and I'll try to hit on the keynotes. I think a lot of people watch a lot of YouTube, and they get confused you know, the three best things, the five best things. And I'll try to do some things similar to that because I think people want information in chunks. I want things simple and easy provided to me. I don't want to have to think through it too much. But this whole design process of designing a hunting property is way more complex than I think people make it. We're dealing with ecological systems, which we don't fully understand from the science side of things. So trying to put together a plan is really, really difficult. One example is just thinking about ecological succession. That's basically the stages of plants as they start to develop. And it's usually gradual. You know, there's really no specific timeline, but we try to categorize things so we understand the timing of each stage. We think about soil, climate, any disturbances we can do. A lot of this discussion around disturbance with a lot of these podcasts is fire. In some areas, you just can't use fire. Prescribed fire being, you know, a very opportune tool that will easily allow you to manipulate the landscape and restart it essentially killing off you know plants depending on the timing it really does a good job of getting rid of leaf litter in some areas so in the areas that you can't use that you're really kind of stuck with kind of mechanical means and chemical means it's a lot of work but if you have an opportunity to use fire design your property around you know fire environments you know we've talked about having kind of breaks in the landscape where you can create separation so you can easily manage areas one mistake people do is they interval of fire. They use fire too frequently and too hot. So slow, steady burns are really important. And um, things that are sustainable uh, have to happen in increments. And so being very intense about you know changing the landscape is not a great thing. Now, other options, uh, wildfires obviously occur. We've we've all been you know probably listening in the news about the the wildfires that are in different areas. Timber harvesting which I talk quite a bit about in this podcast, mowing, disking, natural tree death, disease, storm damage, and drought. You know, those are all the things you're kind of dealing with. I do a lot of mowing, disking, and cutting the timber in my area. And uh, the tools I use, tractor, flail mower, rotary mower. I use a little chainsaw, big chainsaw. Those are pretty much my tools. I've got a backpack sprayer expenses budget 
So one of the homework assignments I want to give everybody listening to this podcast, I want you to think about the tools that you have, the disturbance factor. So how frequently are you disturbing your landscape? What's your budget and time availability? So understanding your resources, the money that you have, and the time that you can put into it. Now, if you don't have the money, then you're going to have to offset it with time. If you have the money, maybe you can pay somebody to do it. And so that's the concept of coming up with kind of a resourceful ideology about your property. Just thinking what you can do. Let's talk back about the ecological succession. So this is like kind of the progression of plants. So in the first years after disturbance, you know, uh, roughly one through three, you get a lot of these annual grasses and forbs. Now, it depends on the area. So if you're cutting a woody area, you're going to get, you know, a lot of woody material coming back there, depending on the time of year that you cut it. If you cut an open field setting or woodland setting, you're probably going to get more of these annual grasses and forbs. And it depends on slope, aspect, and quality of soil. But in these open areas, uh, a lot of times they're on the edges, you're going to get kind of, you know, the, the important ones, ragweed, Partridge pea, horseweed, flea bane, black-eyed susan, poke weed, witchgrass, morning glories, beggar's lice, native warm season grasses. In year two to five, everything starts to develop a little bit further. You start to get goldenrod, blackberry, more poke weed, hopefully, sumac, big stem, little blue stem, Indian grass, right? You get all sorts of different plants. And then we start to get those next seral stages. In the south, you get pine, sweet gum, poplar, cherries. In the north, who knows? A lot of maple in my area, so it's a lot of hard maple. And then once you get those climatic communities, those kind of mature communities, you get poplars, oak, hickories, beech trees, maples. Depends where you are, but you see these ecological successions. And the one thing you can do is you can cut each species down and figure out its age if you're trying to figure out the status of the community that you're working with, you got to cut the tree down to figure out the exact age. And, and apply that to a, a situation where the tree is of poor quality and poor form. There's no economic value. And assume that the trees adjacent to that may have some similar status. They may have a similar age. Think about the age of that tree, its economic value, its wildlife value. And we'll talk a little bit about that today. So I want to get into the design process, and I want to just let everyone know this is, again, way more complicated than you see on YouTube. I think a lot of times there's a lot of dynamic interaction of elements and plants and humans and these disturbances and, and talking a little bit about how to organize this thing. You know, there's some pretty basic ecological principles that we want to focus on, and a lot of times it's basing the care in your hands. You have the opportunity to study your environment, observe, so take the time to observe. Do your homework. What is my vegetation types? What do I like? Based on the vegetation types, what do I want to change? And why do I want to change it? Understanding its ecological value and function. It's really, really important. Incrementally taking steps to change your property is a way better move than just coming in and slashing and dashing. Just taking big changes. Everything is affected by the soil and your ability to manage the soil well. And we're going to create these little niche communities that will attract deer, these microclimates. Microclimates are really, really important. One thing that we need to explore is these micro macroclimates. They're all affected by your rain, the prevailing winds, frost states, snow, weather conditions, right? If you have extreme drought, the sunlight, those are all the things that affect those communities. And the soil, the value of the soil, the fertility of the soil, that will also, you know, take 
a hit or it will benefit you. So knowing your quality of soil, and I talked enough about soils throughout this past year where if you hadn't listened to those podcasts, please go back. We talk about soil friability, how to evaluate soil, very simple methodologies. It's very, very simple. You can physically see soil and establish a baseline of, of the soil quality. Understanding the hydrology of the soil is really, really important. These are things you can you can all do research on and figure out, okay, will my soil infiltrate or will it run off? Right, will all water seep through it or is it going to run off in the landscape? And that'll, that'll integrate a practice. Maybe we integrate swells in the landscape to do more water catchment. One of the things I keep talking about is the importance of catching water in the landscape. Taking advantage of water's natural movement on the landscape and dispersing it or making sure it, it stays and it slowly infiltrates across the property is really, really important. It creates a whole host of opportunities. One thing, just a very easy strategy to do. Those that you have that deal with uh, non-native plants and bush form, bush honeysuckle would be a good example. You could kill that tree. You could cut it down so that usually it's in a shrub form, sometimes a tree form, a short tree form, and you can bring it over to an area and create a line on a slope. And depending on the grade of that slope, you may do intervals of 20 yards or 30 yards. Create kind of a contour-shaped key line and place those particular shrubs in that area. What you're going to find is it's going to slow the water in the landscape. It's going to collect water and nutrients in those particular areas. And you're going to be amazed at the plant life that grows in that particular area, assuming there's adequate sunlight. So it creates this little microclimate. And the microclimate likely will create food value and create high activity to plants you know, and animals. Animals want to be attractive to areas of high moisture. It's very, very critical to manage moisture. I cannot stress that enough on your landscape. It's one of the most largest things that are overlooked by, by clients that I deal with. Clients ask me all the time, like, well, what should I start with? And one of the homework assignments is just understanding not only the abiotic conditions, you know, soil type, minerals, et cetera, but take a look at how deer utilize the landscape. And think about if you were designing your property, how would you change that? And how, how would you attract them to an area? What would you actually do? And, and food plots, which are a small percentage uh, of the equation, are valued highly, but you're not going to put a food plot on a slope. If you terrace a slope and you have this nice terrace system, it's not, like, it's not likely wide enough to put a food plot on, right? But maybe you want to terrace the slope because it's so steep that the deer has no place to live. And you want to slow down water as it travels down that slope. And you, it's too steep to put in these catchment swells. So as you terrace it, you create these flat spots. And depending on how you, you know, create them on the landscape, you can come across with a dozer. And now you're utilizing very steep ground to create these catchment zones for water, as well as put a place to, uh, an area to place deer because it's flat ground. Very simple concept that's utilizing more space you know, for ecological function and for deer usage. One of the things that I want to make sure that I hit on is, you know, we always focus on building diversity on our landscapes. And diversity is really, really critical to thinking about, you know, what do these trees and species do? One of the things I think we all get kind of mixed up in is thinking about, you know, what does a tree species do? When my client and I sit down, we talk about its ecological function, and you're like, well, we're here to build a deer hunting property. Well, if you don't understand what the trees do and the benefit to the birds, the bees, the beetles, all the sorts of bugs, right, anything that, that propagates or, you know, creates uh, pollination, you know, if you're not thinking about that in concert with all the other value sets that we talk about where we don't want a monocrop, right, we want polycultures of um, uh, food plots, you know, you're thinking of this diversity set across the landscape. you got to understand what things are doing. 
you know, some plants are better at, uh, at collecting phosphorus and staging in the in the leaves. And as they die, they slowly release that nitrogen or phosphorus back into the uh, the soil. You're thinking about, you know, what's the cycling of the nutrients and the benefit. So there's this, you know, I, I will say cycling, and the cycling is really, really, really critical. Uh, I'm going to break in to talk a little bit about a sub community, a plant community that I was on a property recently. I was in a bottomland area. And in that bottomland area, there was hackberry, American elm, and green ash. Those three tree species were extremely prevalent. I am a huge fan, huge, huge fan of American elm. Love American elm. One of my favorite trees. And uh, it's a great tree for many different reasons. I remember my grandfather years ago burning that tree for firewood. And uh, I know that they used it because of its fibrous material for weaving baskets. It obviously hinge cuts well for those that love to hinge cut trees. It typically resides in wetter areas. And it's really good for kind of these floodplain areas when you have a lot of wet ground. It does a good job because it's got this very shallow, fibrous root system that expands out in the landscapes. And it's it's it does a nice job of limiting soil from kind of eroding in the landscape it does a nice job of that it also you know really is used a lot of times at least i remember it being used for wood products because it's very pliable like i said earlier my grandfather used it for fuel it's wood it does a great job at windbreaks around waterways i've seen it used in field settings it's used in reclaiming areas like i said earlier erosion control great like Overhead canopy areas, great nesting sites. It can also be a cavity tree, depending on the size of it. You know, so you think about, you know, the seeds that it produces, uh, the flower bud that drops off, mice, squirrels, rough grouse, big interest in those particular trees. And like I said earlier, it's one of those trees that I think we don't pay enough attention to because it we had the uh, Dutch elm disease, and that really killed off a lot of those tree species. Now, also in that community that I didn't mention was red, elber, red mulberry trees. Red mulberry trees are, you know, really, really kind of a cool tree. Years ago, a neighbor had planted a red mulberry tree, and I wasn't really sure, you know, how well it would do. I also wasn't sure. I'm in zone five, which is the edge of its its preference areas. A lot of times you'll see it in zone sixes and seven. I wanted to see what the fruit value was. And what I found was the deer loved to eat the twigs off those trees, um, it's a it's an edible tree for the deer, but it also the fruit value is incredible. And you know after it starts bearing you know fruit, you know you're going to get a whole bunch of uh, interested uh, birds. And I saw ducks eating it. I mean, just incredibly interesting to look at a particular tree and see it affects so many different animals. And in the case, I saw a lot of bluebirds, and I have bluebirds in my area that like those particular fruits. Let's see, I'm trying to think. I saw woodpeckers. Uh, I know that squirrels would likely eat if they're on the edge of a water area. And it's also a tree that likes to be consumed by beavers. It's an easy tree for them to gnaw on. So, you know, just recognize it has multiple attributes and values across the landscape. And this is one of the concepts I do. What is this tree's ecological function and how does it benefit our landscape? And understanding other trees that would be compatible with it and understanding if those trees would benefit from its relationship. So a lot of times when you attract, you know, insects because of the fruiting, it's nice to have other fruiting trees around that. Crab apple trees, elderberry, right, pear trees, gooseberry, plums, choke cherry, choke berries, whatever you want to call them. You know, there's all those different species 
that are really, really attracted. And as a result, you get this, we'll, we'll call it polyculture, and you're creating this plant relationship, and it's a plant guild. And again, it creates this high-value location, which becomes a focal point on the landscape. So what I'm trying to lead you into is these design concepts aren't just bedding area, travel corridor, or food plot. We're getting down to the tree level, and we're looking at that tree's benefit on the landscape. And it's much, 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 much more involved than you had any idea. Now, when we start to scale it up, you start to get overwhelmed. And here's the trick for trees. Once you have diversity on the, on the landscape, you build this thing called capital. Think about it as money in the bank. And in, in order to create capital, you have to have reserves, okay? This is just like investing. And what you end up doing is you build this ecological function of a lot of different tree species. And what they do is they replenish themselves. So I was on a property not too long ago, and it was about, oh, a few hundred acres. And they had a section where they did maple, uh, maple syrup. And they said, wow, we've got this maple syrup area. We'd like it better for deer hunting. And a new concept that I came up with, silvopasture. Not a new concept for me, but a new concept for the client. And I introduced the idea of having portions of the areas tubed off where they, they could you know, easily get the, the sap, harvest the sap. And they had created this monocrop of sugar maple. And I said, this is a bad idea. Like, if you guys ever have some type of disease that affects sugar maple and you don't have diversity and these trees are all harvesting kind of the same mineral base, you're not kind of replenishing the landscape with a diverse set of you know, dying living plants and plants that consume different minerals. There's all these fungal networks that aren't as created as seamlessly. You need to start going into these areas and either create rows or patchwork of, of clear cuts. I said, okay. And I said, you can fence some of those off or you can make them available to other species. And I said, have you ever consider, uh, considered integrating, you know, hogs in there? They're like, well, no. Well, I said, a small group of you know, hogs can go in there and they can root up some of these areas and create disturbance in small quantities. We're talking three, four pigs that go in these areas. And, you know, you, you fence and pasture them off and, and eventually, you know, you can eat the hog. You're creating disturbance in the landscape. You're introducing patchwork openings and you're still benefiting yourself by getting the maple syrup production. So we took a 50 acre area and we changed the principles and functionality behind it because they introduced some new concepts. Now, that may not apply to you, but the ideal is it's a little bit more complex than just saying, okay, there's a bedding area, a transition corridor, and a food plot. And if you're dealing with consultants or ideology just surrounding that, and it's that basic, you're not going to get to the next level. And if you want to get to level 200, 300, 400, 500, we're going to have to understand a little bit more about the ecological functionality of our landscape and how plants capture energy, store energy, and how they recycle energy. And if we build richer soils, because we have a lot of diversity, we can grow more food in, in a smaller space. And so if we want to integrate trees into a woodland area, and that would be area with less trees, more sunlight to the ground, not a forest setting, we can integrate diversity into that landscape. So cycling nutrients in our bodies and in the trees is like the same thing. If we have well-fed trees or well-fed bodies, we're going to have a lot, a lot of highly complex communities, fungal networks, a lot of diversity, bigger trees, trees that don't survive die, 
right? The ones that are of poor form, poor quality, they go. The ones that have genetic variation that doesn't benefit them, they don't survive. They don't stand or withstand the, the microclimates or macroclimates that you create in your landscape, creating these open areas, closed areas, this patchwork of cuts. And you want a buffet of minerals. How you create that is having diversity. Plants consume different elements in the soil. They break down the biomass. They disperse more minerals. They apply it back in the soil. It's this constant cycle of uptake, intake, uptake, intake. And what you got to understand is the cycle of nutrients is really, really important. And, you know, the mulch that the trees create when they have these, all these leaves fall on the ground, they decompose, you know, that's the waste. But the waste isn't really waste. What it is is just comp composting material that benefits the tree. And if you don't have a diverse set of leaves hitting the ground, creating different mineral elements as they decompose, attracting you know, this disturbing squirrel who basically mixes up the ground, adds maybe a nut, right? They're adding diversity on your landscape. So having diverse, we'll say plants and animals creates diversity and it continues that diversity. It's sustainable. It's the sustainable permanent environment. And your job is to go and manage small elements of disturbance in the equation and creating more food elements as a result of that. It's really interesting when you come to think about it because when we're getting right down to it, deer like certain things at certain times. One of the biggest mistakes I see in client properties, they go clear cut an area. They say, okay, we're going to even age management. We're going to kill everything in here. And we're going to bring it down to scratch. And let's say these areas are two, three, four, five acres. And like, well, I'm doing a good thing. I'm sequestering carbon because I've got a lot of these young growing plants that are, you know, ingesting and producing and all those things that go with carbon sequestration but 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 you're giving yourself within that two or three acres a limited opportunity to have an uneven stage of management because everything's going to grow up the same rate if you left clumps of trees that were diverse in pockets and adjacent those areas you did clear cuts you would be better off in the long term oh wait one more concept Maybe you're doing a different style where you're having some areas that are open, meaning a clear cut, closed, meaning canopy or intermediate. That would be select cutting or group cutting within an area. This is a fundamental secret to how I design hunting properties. If any of you consultants are listening to this, and I know a lot of consultants listen to this podcast, that is my secret to success right there. Any client, any potential client, it's much deeper than I just explained it. But that concept right there is the game changer. We can talk about walls of cover and limiting deer interests, utilizing slash, planting apple trees, crab apple trees, pear trees, whatever you want to do. What I just introduced right there, that is my largest secret to how I design hunting properties. The concept seems so basic, but it's so fundamental. So when you're cutting a bedding area, apply that concept. If you don't understand the concept, then you hire a consultant to explain it to you, to give you more information, and to manage it for your particular landscape. Because those can only go in certain locations. Creating those diverse ecosystems is really, 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 really important. We talked about a lot of different things so far, and diversity is really, really important. I'm going to end on, on a particular topic that I think is really important. It's called fighting monocultures. 
The concept of companion cropping I brought up a while ago, the three sisters. And what we want to do is we want to integrate a variant set of plants. And if you do a variant set of plants, you're going to find that you're dealing with less disease. Plants are working in synergistic environments and that diversity limits failure. So as an example, if you just plant a 100% soybean crop or 100% corn crop and you have a crop failure, it's 100% loss. If you hedge your bet and you have, let's say, oats, peas, a radish, a brassica, you have different plant species that you're integrating into an area, you're creating this ponderosa environment. If one fails, the other one might do well. You're hedging your bets. And so when you're planting trees in your landscape and you're creating windbreaks or water catchment systems or you're creating um, limiting soil erosion, you're creating diversity in in those functions, you're going to benefit. One of the functions that I like to create is I like to create a lot of uh, margins on my landscape, basically areas of two ecotypes where they meet. And I like to open up those areas. And in those, I like to have a lot of diversity. So one, an area that I can manage. Usually there's a visual limitation that comes with it. I'm managing the plant species in those areas and I'm cutting things down. I'm keeping certain tree species that are like good form. I'm thinking about its ecological function. It's kind of involved, right? And then what I'm doing is I'm trying to see the soil variation, the sun variation, these little microclimates that I create. And what I find in the areas that I cut that are like that, huge value to the deer, huge attractivity levels. The deer go nuts for those things. And again, it's very purposeful and it's very uh, intentional. And I'm thinking about the certain plant species that I'm going to keep. So one of the things I'm going to end on is um, when we're building these environments, a lot of times we're focused on one thing, energy, sunlight energy, plant succession, you know, the circulation of carbon, nitrogen, water, and oxygen within a plant, thinking about these integrations and designing for this, what I'll call a niche, thinking about site-specific plants that require less maintenance, less energy. They work in synergy, and uh, there's a concept called plant guilds. I introduced some of that concept. I introduced a little bit before where I talked about nitrogen-accumulating plants or nitrogen-fixing plants, Plants that accumulate minerals, you know, deep taprooted plants, one is comfrey. So if I'm building like an apple orchard or crab apple orchard, I'm going to do less trees so I can manage those trees, right? I'm not going to do 50 trees. I'll probably do 10 trees in an orchard. I want them spaced well enough where I can have some, you know, I'll have alleyways of of clover. I'll introduce a non-native plant, comfrey, Russian comfrey. And those are chop and drop where I'll have a deep taproot of plant that pulls up minerals. Adjacent, I'll have daffodils. I'll have a different different variation, uh, black currants. I'll have a whole host of different plant species, even some vining species. And what what I'll do is I'll create these ecosystems that are sustainable. One accumulates minerals. One fixes nitrogen. You know, one creates a fruiting opportunity and attracts a lot of animals particularly deer and small mammals to those areas. Again, a small mammal is going to get in there. It's going to dig up an area. It's going to add a a nut. It's going to plant something. It's going to create disturbance. And so these natural cycles are sustainable. And, you know, the design process is way more complex than we make it. I'm trying to make this seem less complex, but this is just the 
the, the tip of the spear, so to speak. And we've got to recognize that if we're going to build something, something that functions well, you need to understand the benefit. If it's animal forage, carbon sequestration, uh, it's for flooding management, like erosion control, insect attractant, nitrogen fixer, scavenger, nitrogen scavenger. If we're using it for our own personal food benefit, right? Um, maybe it provides more carbohydrates to the animals or ourselves. It's got a lot of vitamins, minerals. Um, maybe we're creating baskets like uh, the elm. You can use some of the fibrous material to create baskets. Some of these have natural insect uh, repellents or it creates aromas that attract or detract. You know, a lot of times we're thinking about the benefit on the landscape and in these plant communities, you know, that's really going to be the trick to your success. And really, uh, in my area, you know, I, I deal with a lot of, uh, you know, temperate deciduous forests. Those are my areas that I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with a lot of maple and beech trees and hickory trees and some areas that are a little bit drier oak trees. And then the understory species and what I call sub thickets, where you get some trees of, you know, certain height of density, you know, mulberry would be a good example where you can coppice those and they kind of sprout. You know, bass would another example. You get some of these trees that you can create these kind of sub thickets and you've got these great communities that are so ecologically diverse the value and the cover component, the food component, it's just a game changer in the landscape. And I am not a naturalist 100% uh, because I do believe, and I'll probably introduce some plants that I think are really good in the landscape. And, you know, one of those things I just heard recently in a podcast, and I'll be careful not to get too deep in this, is somebody was talking a little bit about miscanthus grass. And you know, it's like it should never been introduced. It's a horrible plant. You know, what is everybody thinking? Other than taking the rhizome and distributing it all over the world, my experience so far is it it doesn't get out of control. It doesn't have a tendency to repopulate. I've not seen uh, that it propagates itself. So it's not fertile, it looks like. And really, it, it creates great concealment, cover, its structure and purpose is really well in ice conditions, windy conditions, snow conditions. It rebounds a lot better than switchgrass. It really is a great particular plant that I think that people are so negative about it. It was modified, no different from your corn, to have a particular purpose. And it serves that purpose without creating big ecological devastation like other plants such as autumn olive, uh, honeysuckles have created. And to degrade a plant like that because... You want to instill this fear that non-native plants, and recognize this, non-native plants have become naturalized for eons. Plants have traveled all over the place from the bird species. You know, what we think is naturalized from 200 years ago is not necessarily a naturalized community. That just happened to be the community that was 200 years ago. Now, obviously economics and uh, obviously spread from, you know, transportation, et cetera, has added, and we, of course, have made some poor decisions uh, by introducing different plant species and that has changed the ecological communities uh, to the devastation point of you know losing and uh, you know some some animals going extinct but regardless you know some of these plants that we just degrade because I think there's a you know somebody has a chip on their shoulder or has an opinion that it's just it just it's a bad idea you've really got to look at its ecological function and recognize does it really do that much harm it takes up a footprint 
And could that footprint be used uh, for another plant? I'm sure it could. Does it function exactly the same as that particular plant? Take a, you know, like I said earlier, a native warm season grass and see how it survives in ice. See the cover value that it provides during snow loads. It doesn't. So to compare a natural plant sometimes uh, that is native versus a developed plant that is non-native may not always be the best example just based on its naturalization and, uh, you know, if it's a native plant. Uh, some native plants, in my opinion, are so noxious. Grapevine is a great example. That is a plant that I think we have a tendency to promote, and it promotes itself. It produces a lot of fruit, a lot of value, but it's overtaking. So that noxious activity, same thing with switchgrass. Switchgrass is extremely productive. Switchgrass would take over an entire food plot area. So those that are planting switchgrass in large quantities, these monocrops or monotypes of switchgrass, guess what happens on the landscape? It takes over. And what's the benefit? It eliminates interest because it's not ecologically diverse. It does not provide an ecologically diverse set of criteria to attract animals to it. All right. That's it for today. Hopefully everybody's doing well. I hope you like this. This is my solo one. I'm going to do more of these, you know, come about uh, over this, this next year. I want to talk a little bit more coming up about hunting tactics, and we're going to have a technical hunting series this season. I'm going to introduce some new concepts, things that are pretty involved, and this is next-level hunting stuff. This isn't level 300 or 400. This is level five, 600. This will be top-notch stuff from me and other guests that you know, you're not likely to hear on, on some other podcast. So I appreciate you all following along. Again, these designs are way more complicated. It's not just bedding, travel corridors, and food plots. It's a lot more ecologically diverse. It's thinking about ecological functionality. All right, this is, uh, I think, level 200. We're going to get to three and 400 here in this design process. I appreciate releasing some of these secrets. Hopefully that helps the folks that are consulting and those that are designing your hunting properties. I'm John Teeter of Whitetail Landscapes. Maximize your hunt. Thanks. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.